0: If you will be, please be turning with me in your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, there you got some in the pews there in front of you. It's on page 1076. Make it easy for you. 1076. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1. Be reading verse 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy.
1: Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you, and it encourages us that you're here, and we want to be an encouragement to you. Uh, We also want to be an encouragement to our fellow Christians and uh, just our fellow man uh, that have been flooded recently. It breaks our heart to see on the news of the disaster that uh, Isaac has made last week across various parts of the U.S., but it also breaks our heart to tell you that also in Purlington, Mississippi, where we as a congregation have worked for several years, uh, most of the homes that we have helped rebuild were flooded this past week. And so uh, we will have teams going down there again, and what we're asking you to do is if any of you could be a part of a team that would leave as early as this coming Wednesday, uh, your help would be valued tremendously. We need individuals that can help tear out and uh, and then later on, we'll need more skilled individuals that can even help put back together. If you could be a part of that, uh, Bobby Cole or Glenn Kaufman would be the men to see on that. If you do not know them, you find one of us and we'll help you get in touch with them, uh, but you're needed and your work would be greatly appreciated. Also, uh, we think of other ways to reach out and help others. And what if we could help families? What if we could make a real difference, a lasting and eternal difference in families? Uh, many of you have been placing on your facebook the the video that we have put out to advertise this particular series and we hope that you will if you have not yet gone to our website you'll go to mountjuliet.org and on the front page you'll see that video right there and what we're wanting you to do is not only watch it for your sake you're already here part of the series and we're glad you're here but we would really like to spread this message all around and if you can spread that on Facebook, if you're not on Facebook, if you can tweet, it, if you're not on uh, if, if you're not on those means, surely maybe you have email and you can just take the link of our MountJuliet.org, and you can email it out. If people are too far from here, they can go on live and listen as we live stream or they can listen to the archives later on uh, after each sermon has been uh, studied. And also, they can study with us in our Bible classes as we'll study this month. Also, the theme of holiness from the result or from the angle of looking at our families. But most of all, we want to reach those families that are around us. Who is it that you've been inviting to church? Who is it that you've been praying about? Maybe it's a next door neighbor. Maybe it's a first cousin. Maybe there's somebody that's been on your mind a lot and they would benefit from this study. Would you go home this afternoon? Would you email them? Would, would you invite them to come and to be a part of it? Would you give them a phone call? And then at the end of this month, we'll have our family emphasis day, which has always been a tremendous day. This year, I will be the speaker as we continue this theme together. We'll still have the tent outside. We'll still enjoy a big fellowship meal together. We'll still have the evening worship service in the tent uh, that evening. It, it should be just a tremendous month, but then there's one final plea. Will you enter into the study this month with a heart that says, I want to be to my family what God wants me to be? Anatomy, my family, my responsibility. Will you go into this study considering strongly what is it that God would will for you to do in your life? And what is it that you can do to grow? There may be some of us here that need to make major changes in our life, but all of us have room to grow. And as this video starts out, it starts out with these words. I'm going to cut him open. We don't know who the first person was that looked at a corpse and said, I'm going to cut him open. But since that has happened, it revolutionized medicine. You see, before there were a lot of beliefs that just simply weren't true about the human anatomy. When you and I go into doctor's visits today and whenever we go into hospitals and surgeons and they perform medical procedures... What they are doing is resting upon the shoulders of several hundreds of years ago when individuals said, we need to get into the depth of what the human anatomy is all about. You see, Andres Vercellus was one of the men that is considered the the founder of modern human anatomy. He lived in the 1500s. He was a product of a man named Galen. Galen had lived even hundreds of years before that. He was known as a barber slash surgeon. You remember reading about those days, don't you? Well, you see, he and his work became the work that medical students would study to find out more of how to practice medicine. The problem is, he had retrieved a lot of his studies because one time he dissected an ape. Well, as you can imagine, there was a lot of flaws in dissecting an ape and trying to bring that over into a human study of the body. The result were many things, things like for years, individuals thought that the human jaw was two bones, just like in animals, or there was a lot of misunderstanding about the heart and the arteries and the blood vessels and, and the various chambers of the heart and all of that is Andreas that he dissected the human body. And not only that, a judge was impressed by his work and started giving him the cadavers of all of the criminals that died in jail. And he also linked up with an artist that was a pretty good artist. And the result of that was to create a manual, a handbook that became a reliable source of the anatomy of the human body. You see, this is a fact. You can't dissect an ape and come out with good, healthy recommendations for the human body. You can't dissect Good, secular marriages. You know, those marriages where they get along with each other and they've been married 40 or 50 years. You can't dissect those relationships and figure out what is it that God wants us to be in strong, spiritual, holy families. You can't dissect secular families that the parents and the children just get along and the children make straight A's in school and then say that's exactly what we want to do let's dissect that family you won't come out with holiness when you dissect that family What we're going to do this month is we're not going to talk about the stuff that's on the surface that anybody that's a human being could figure out We're not going to linger with Dr Phil and Oprah but we're going to go deeper and we're going to see if we were to dissect holy relationships. What is it in the anatomy of a holy relationship? What is it that God has called us to be? It's interesting as we study this the text that we have here in 1 Peter. If you have your your eyes on your scriptures there, look at 1 Peter, the first chapter again, and look back at 13, 14, and 15, 16. It's been capably read. And notice when we read verse 15, we see that there's an emphasis on the mind. And by the way, tonight we're going to come back and see the rest of this sermon. And we're going to see in this chapter, other aspects of the anatomy of a spiritual relationship. And one of them that we'll look at will be this very paragraph about the mind. We're only using this for introduction this morning. And notice it is about, our mind whenever we start thinking differently than the secular world would think. Notice we're going to understand the grace of God. And isn't it interesting that the end of verse 13, that it's not the end of the sentence and it speaks as obedient children. Now, how can we talk about the grace of God and obedient children? Because obedient children means that they are obedient to a law. You mean to tell me that we can talk about grace and law in the same sentence, in the same context? Absolutely. A part of God's grace is that God gives us a law in which to live by that calls us to holy living. How terrible would it be if I told you, or better yet, if God told you, there is a way that your family can live a holy, blessed, spiritual life. (laughs) But I'm not going to tell you what it is. You say, God is cruel. God is gracious that He gives us boundaries, He gives us guidance, He gives us law, that if we will obey it, the more we obey it, even the more we understand, I'm not saying it's all there is to the grace of God, but I'm saying even the better we understand the grace of God itself. And so here we read about this gracious God that we have, and we read about obedient children, and and notice there's a transformed life where we're no longer living by the lust that would be in our ignorance, living in In the depths of the world. But look in 15. But as he who has called you is holy, you also must be holy in all of your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Notice he says, be holy in all of your conduct. That's a high calling. You see, it'd be much easier if we, if we said, you know what, we don't have to be holy in everything. And by the way, what is holy? Holy is not just set apart from the world. In a Bible class, you ask the question, what is sanctification? Which, by the way, the same Greek word that translates sanctification and holiness, it's the same word. So you ask in Bible class, what does sanctification mean? And most often you'll get the answer to be set apart. That's not enough. It is a part of the answer. But it's not set apart to to say, well, I'm not exactly in communion with the world anymore. The idea of holiness is I am now owned by God. He is my master. I am a vessel in his service. I am available for him to use me. So it's not just set apart as if I live on a suburb of the world, but it's set apart as if I live in a holy relationship with the Father. It is within that relationship that we find our holiness. It is within relationship that we find that grace, that we find that law. It is in that relationship that we find the strength to turn away from the world. Our challenge is that whenever we think, it just simply means that we're not like the world anymore. We do the old thing, and any of us could do it well. We do the old thing where we pick out someone in the world that's living a lot more worldly than what we're living. And then we step an arm's length away from them and we say, see, I'm sanctified. I'm not like the people in the depths of the world anymore. You remember in elementary school, whenever you go to recess and you'd have to stand and you're getting ready to do jumping jacks and he'd say, you get an arm's length away from each other and you do fingertip to fingertip. Remember that? And then he'd say, drop your hands and then you'd do your jumping jacks. Now, how oftentimes do we do that with the world? Oh, I want to live a holy and a sanctified life. What does that mean? Well, that means I'm an arm's length away from the world. I can always find somebody in the depths of the world that's living a more ungodly life than me. You see, I'm different from them. That's not holy living. Notice here in the text, he said, you're holy in all, A-L-L, all of your conduct. Philip Yancey in the book, Rumors of Another World, begins the fourth chapter by telling this story. He said, I was a guest speaker at a church and I was given a report about a ministry I was involved in. And when I finished, a young, a middle-aged man came up in a flannel shirt and a cowlick sticking straight up. And it was obvious that he was really impressed with the report that night. And he it was impacting his life as he spoke of various things he would love to do to be involved in this ministry. And as he told about this, the person that was on his elbow spoke up and said, I need to tell you. Jason is very sincere in what he is saying. I work at the place that he lives Twelve years ago, he was in a horrible car accident and it took the life of his wife and it left him with a permanent brain injury. Jason's problem is that he he will lose all short-term memory every day. He said, the truth is, by the time I drive him home this evening, when he gets out of the car, he will not have remembered being here. And Jason smiled and he said, that's right. He said, I won't remember this conversation And with almost a foolish grin, he said, I won't even remember that I ever met you or what you talked about. Think how sad it is when lives are lived in disconnected moments. We only live a life of value and purpose whenever we can take all of the moments and the pieces of our life and bring them into the fabric of a greater whole. And our problem is, though, we battle with this because we live in a world that lives constantly fragmented lives. There is no anchor in their life. There is no greater hole that it pulls back to. And the truth is, it pulls at our fleshly nature. Our fleshly nature is I want to go to this person and I want to interact with him and do as I want to do And I want to go to work tomorrow and I want to do what I want to do at work And I want to go home and I want to talk the way I want to talk and I want to act the way I want to act and I want to go to church and I want to try to put on this aside That really i'm a different person there than i've been everywhere else And the problem is we can't bring this life back to a greater whole It fulfills our fleshly desire For the moment but there's no fulfillment long-term. And so our challenge is to be holy in all of our conduct. So then we truly do have a single story that we're living. And it's God's story. Where we go to work and go to home and go to church and everywhere we go, we have the same Designating force, the same compass in our life, and it is the holiness of God. We live for moments instead of eternity. We never find holiness. We live for desire instead of commitment. We never find holiness. We live for possessions instead of values. We live for people instead of God. We live for fleshly instead of spiritual. We live detached lives instead of holy encompassed lives. And in those things, I like... A few quotes from a fellow named William Law that was born in the late 1500s and did a lot of his writings in the early 1600s. And there's really a neat story behind his life that we won't take time to go into this morning, but it really, he put his faith where his mouth was, if you were, and he made some decisions that changed the rest of his life that a lot of people probably would not have made, but it was because of his faith in God. And so, the, and his writings are so powerful that 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 some of his writings coming out of of uh, this century are considered some of the Christian classics of that century. And so he writes writes in a book called uh, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. And he says this, They therefore who confine religion to times and places and who think that it is being too strict and rigid to make religion give laws to all their actions and ways of living They who think thus mistake the whole nature of religion. Do you think it's unfair? Do you think it's unfair for God to ask you to live a holy life in every aspect of your life? Is it fair for God to to ask you to go to work, a secular place, and live a holy life? Is it fair for Him to ask you to go... And and with a rebellious child, remain holy while dealing with them? Or with an irate parent, and ask you as a child to remain holy in dealing with them? Is it fair to deal with a client that is unfair, but yet you deal with them in a holy way? Is it fair for God to expect you to go to school? Is it fair for God to expect you to remain holy with a brother or sister in Christ that's not holy? Is God asking too much? When he says, I want you to be holy in all of your conduct. A few paragraphs later, Law writes, and he mentions Philippians, the fourth chapter and verse eight. You remember, that's the passage of what we're to think about whatsoever things or or true, and whatsoever things are honest, and whatsoever things are just, and whatsoever things are pure, and whatsoever things are lovely, and whatsoever things of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise. He says, think on these things. Now, that's a high calling to say that that's all we're going to think about is those things that are pure and good. And so and then Law describes this. He says, for no one can come near the doctrine of this passage, but he who proposes to himself to do everything in this life as the servant of God. What a beautiful phrase. We're going to propose to do everything in this life as a servant of God, to live by reason in everything that he does and to make the wisdom and the holiness of the gospel the rule and measure of this life. What if we said, I want to live by the gospel of God in everything. Now pause here for a moment. Are we in a family series? What greater way can you change a family than by get beginning with you? The anatomy of great relationships, my family, my responsibility. What if everybody in this congregation went out this week and they lived a holy and devout life in every aspect of their life? Can you imagine how families would be different this week? If holiness prevailed in everything we did, families would immediately be changed. But you see, we like to talk about the surface stuff. And the surface stuff can be important. But what I want you to see in this study is that we're going to have to cut him open. And we're going to have to get deep into what is the anatomy of spiritual relationships. And what we see is that there's some depth there that says, I'm going to strive to be holy in everything. And yes, that is going to be quite a bit different from the world. In 1 Peter, the first chapter, we're going to read here in just a moment in verse 1. But if you have your Bibles, I don't have a slide for this, but I'd like for you to see this if you have your Bible open. Did you notice in the second chapter it begins with the word therefore? In other words, everything in the first chapter is laying the groundwork for what follows in the rest of first Peter. And so then he's going to talk about things that we need to get away from in our life. And we drop down to the 13th chapter and he talks about the way we need to submit to the government that is over us. We go down into the 18th verse, still in the second chapter, the 18th verse. And he talks about us submitting if we were servants to our masters and by application, that would even be employees to employers. And then we drop down a few more verses in the third chapter and he tells wives how to live among their husbands, even when their husband is not a believer. And we go down to the, seventh verse, we see where he tells husbands how they are to live with their wives. And then when we go verses eight through 12, we see a lot of other practical teaching that he gives us that would deal whether we want to apply it to parent and child relationships or child and parent relationships or siblings or grandparents or nephews and nieces. And what we see in this is we see that Peter takes an entire chapter that from this morning to this evening, we'll look at parts of this chapter to dissect it to show us what it is that is involved in a spiritual, healthy relationship. And here's the heart of it. The heart of it begins in the way he addresses them, as we've already talked about in holiness, but drop back to verse 1. 1 Peter, the first chapter, look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And what he does here is he lists all three members of the Godhead and and we can be the elect, we can be chosen of God because before the foundations of the earth, God chose us. And notice it's in the sanctification of the spirit, the idea that we are sanctified. How do we even know how to live this life that is set apart? The Holy Spirit living in us sets us apart from the power of the world living in us. And notice here the third one, is about Jesus Christ for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And someone says, is that his obedience or is that our obedience? And I think the answer is yes. Remember in Hebrews, the fifth chapter in verse eight, that Jesus came to this earth and through suffering, he learned obedience. And then in verse nine, because of that, he offers salvation to all those who obey. And so now we see here this this elect, but I want you to go back and I want you to look in verse one, that phrase that we get into the anatomy of the feet of the spiritual person, and he says they're pilgrims. Do you really believe this world is not your home? Do you really believe that you're passing through and your heart, your love, your soul, and your mind, and your strength? It's not in this world. It's toward the Lord in heaven. And because of that, you're a pilgrim and you're very, very different because we're pilgrims. Our citizenship is heavenly, not earthly because we're pilgrims. We see that our desire that at one time was for the world is now no longer for the world, but now our desire is for the Lord. And then that law that that was ruling us through the fleshly law of the heart, that, that desire, if you will, that carnal nature that was ruling our life, now has been set aside by the law of Jesus Christ that he gives us so that we can have that obedience as we've already read this morning. So what do we learn about this? Look with me, if you will, as we go over to the next chapter, 1 Peter, the second chapter. Notice there are several verses in here we could read, but we'll read just verse 9 and 10. And we think about this pilgrimage. We think about our feet are passing through this earth. In 1 Peter 2 and 9, notice the different ways that we're described, but each of them go back to this kind of language. But you are a chosen generation, a royal, that would be sons and daughters of a king, priesthood. And priest to his idea, the priests were the ones that devoted their life in, in service to God. And so here we are, the temple now is his church, and we are priests. We have devoted our life to the God that dwells in the temple among us, and, and we're royal priests. But notice that next one, a holy nation. You and I are not a part of this world. If we truly are saved by God, we're part of a holy nation. And that doesn't mean let's let's just get an arm's length away. And whatever the world does in a horrible way, let's just not do it quite as much. Instead, it's a totally different life. We're devoted. We're holy. We're sanctified. We are a holy nation. And then his own special people, Exodus, brings that out in a beautiful way as it says that we are God's treasure. God not only owns us, that's why we're his people, but he loves us and treasures us. And we too are to return that love to him, not the love for the world. First John two and 15 love, not the world, neither the things that are in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life. We don't love those things. We turn to our Lord that we love and we devote our life to him. Notice the rest of this verse that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness and into what? His marvelous light. It's not that we're clinging to this world because we love it so much. Instead, it's we've turned away from it and we look to the light, the enlightenment that Jesus gives us. And we call that a marvelous way to live who once were not a people, but now you are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy In the first chapter, he says, I want to write to pilgrims, people that the world is not their home. In the second chapter, he says, I want to write to those that are part of the holy nation, people that are not at home in this world. Drop back, if you will, with me to Philippians, the third chapter. And I'd like us to finalize this lesson by looking at Philippians 3. And we're going to see another way that he refers to us as pilgrims and another way as a holy nation. First, he begins in the third chapter in verse 17, Philippians 3 and 17. And he says, brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk. That's an interesting phrase. He wants us to join Paul. In following the example that he has set, and note those who also walk that way, as you have us for a pattern. When we obey the law of the Lord, there becomes, if you will, a system to our faith. The beauty of that is there is a consistency. The beauty of that consistency is that all things will come together to the greater whole. Our God is not a God of confusion. He's not the author of confusion. And the beauty of the patterns that he sets forth in our life is because nothing then offsets the other in a negative way. It's all very holy and consistent. Now, notice in verse 18 that this breaks Paul's heart to have to say this about some of them there. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. Now let's pause there for a moment. He says, let me tell you about some enemies of the cross. And the sad thing is, they don't even know they're enemies of the cross. They think they're walking with the Lord. But the fact is, they're on a pathway of destruction. Listen, every path has a destination. And when we're in the world, it's like going to the airport and you walk on that tram and it tells you the various gates it's going to stop at. Listen, when we get in the world, there is no stopping. That tram has one destination and we wouldn't like the outcome of that destination. That's why it's important that we get off that tram. And he says, they're enemies of the cross, Paul, why are you crying? Because I feel sorry for anybody that's going to have that destination that they have. Well, what about them, Paul? Why are they staying there? And this may seem like strange wording to you, but it's really very powerful. He says their belly is their guide. In other words, their fleshly desire is what is ruling their life. This feels good today. Do it. You want this relationship? Have it. You want this substance? Take it. You want this powerful act that's very selfish? Indulge in it. Whatever your desire wants, you go for it. And he says, that is what's ruling their life. And then the third thing that he says is a shame, is he says, they glory in things that they ought to be ashamed of. In other words, now they've reached the point where they can live in the world, think they're Christians, and glory in worldly things and still think that they're Christians. Why notice where their mind was the rest of this verse who set their mind on earthly things. Tonight we're going to study about dissecting the mind and what it should be like out of 1st Peter and notice here's why we're reading this this morning look at 20 for our citizenship is in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where's our citizenship? Paul says, ours is in heaven. These people, their citizenship is in the world. It's a terrible destruction. It's their appetite, their desire ruling them. They're glorying in the things that are bad. They need something different. What do they need? They need to look at the example of, Peter, of people like Paul. And he says, I tell you what I want you to do in the church. I want you to help me out on this. And notice this next slide. This next slide is a quote out of the previous slide. And he says, note those who so walk. That's straight out of the text. And then look, those verses are the previous verses that preclude that. In other words, these are the verses where Paul says, I haven't yet obtained. Paul, are you perfectly holy? Absolutely not. I'm not perfectly holy. But he he said, I can tell you this. I press towards that mark. I lay hold on Jesus Christ. I press toward the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I am not giving up. Even though I'm not perfect, I can tell you for certain, I'm not in the world. I'm not ruled by my desires. I'm ruled by God. I'm keeping my mind on God. I'm keeping my focus on God. I'm not an arm's length away from the world. I'm totally separated from the world. He says, I'd like it if you'd see my example. And then he does something that's really unusual in the New Testament. A lot of the time when we see this kind of language of note or mark, a lot of times it's noting or marking those who are living a sinful life. This time he says, I want you to note and mark the ones that are living the righteous life. I want you to take note of it. You know, in a lot of our generations, we lived in some era where posters filled rooms, didn't they? And maybe there's not quite as many posters on walls today, but there's still posters on hearts. There's still screensavers. And there's still people that people look up to. And I want to ask you, who do you have on your wall? Who have you noted and said, I want to be like them? Who have you noted for your children to regularly point out to your children, I want you to see them. I want to tell you their story. I want to tell you a little bit about their life. Because son, daughter... That right there is a life worth living. I think about an article I read just a week or two ago, and I was so surprised to read this. It was a sports writer. It was written totally from a secular standpoint. And, and he, he said... I came out on the streets of New York City the other day and the streets were full of women. There was middle-aged women and young women and teenage girls and little girls and all of them were gawking at this nice hotel and you could see them all standing on their tippy toes trying to look in. And I thought, who and what kind of world-famous person is in there that all of these women are waiting for? And so he said, I walked up to one of the mothers and I said, hey, who who's in there? What What are you guys waiting on? And he said, with bright eyes, she said, Kim Kardashian. And this secular writer said, I don't understand it. This is a woman who has done nothing but have a reality show that got her fame from a sex tape. And now mothers bring their daughters to line up in hopes that their eyes will just meet with each other. And he said again, I don't understand it. And I thought how sad it is that this secular guy gets it a lot better than some of us that call ourselves Christians. Where we look at individuals like that and we really think they're stars. We think that there's some bright light that we're supposed to hold up and let it glimmer. Friends, I beg you this morning. If your idea of holiness is, oh, I tell you, I wouldn't do everything she does, but I sure admire her, you don't get holiness at all. If your idea is, I won't dress exactly like her, but I'll dress a lot like her, you don't get holiness. Holiness is not an arm's length away. Holiness is, I don't find anything good about that. That breaks my heart. Do you know the destruction that that is? Do you know that what that life is, a fulfillment of desire? How many of us instead have showed our young ladies, Miss Ann Craddock, who lived a holy single life for a lot of years and then a holy married life and now a a holy life as a widow and she's never stopped serving God? An amazing example of strength. How many of you pulled your sons up to you and pointed Brother Albert England and said, Son, nothing would thrill me more than you live a life devoted like that man has lived in service to the Lord and his church and his kingdom. How many of you have have pointed over just the last few weeks? You've all had an opportunity to have kids. How many of you have pointed to Matt Brown or to Alan Cantrell? And how many of you said, listen, son, listen, daughter, when you go off to college, I don't want you to just try to do the right thing. I want you to thrive the way those young men have thrived. They've preached powerful sermons in the last few weeks. And the power is not just in the sermon. It's in the holy life that they live. We've got to mark those people. We've got to admire those people. We've got to become those people. And we've got to start seeing the darkness of the world for what it is. We don't hate the sinner. But we have got to stop loving the sin. This morning, I don't know where this lesson leaves you. Perhaps for some, they're thinking nobody can live a holy life. I just want you to know, if you're going to settle for Satan's lie in that, your life will always be disconnected. Think about the fellow that goes to work, and he or she conducts their business in such a way that when they come home, they would never explain it to their kids because they'd be ashamed to admit it. And then they went to work and they would never tell people at work the way they treat their family because they'd be ashamed to admit it. And they go in the community and they do things that they hope it just doesn't get back to work. You're not going to post that, are you? Because it might get me in trouble. And then they go over to church and they try to put on this front because after all, now I'm entering into a holy place. I've got to look holy and that is wrong. The only thing that makes us different coming here this morning is the fact that we have come together with other believers and that we are focusing in our worship to God. We are to be as holy last night as we are right now. We are to be as holy last week in business and at school as we are right now. And if our idea is, I'm going to take, take a part here and live it out and a part here and live it out, how awesome would it be to be able to go to work and say, I don't matter, it doesn't matter to me what it costs. It doesn't matter to me if it costs my job. It doesn't matter what it costs. I'm going to live a life of holiness. And I'll be glad to go home and to talk with my kids and talk with my family about everything at work. And I'll be glad to go to work and talk with them about everything with my family. I don't have anything to hide. And what about when I go out with the community and I live out in the community and it doesn't matter if it gets back to work. It doesn't matter if it gets back to my family. And I live a life. I am the church. And I live as holy in worship and out of worship. Think how beautiful it is. If you've never thought about this, think how beautiful it is to have a life where every section of our life pulls together into the greater whole. We don't have to hope that somebody finds out, doesn't find out about our vacation. We don't have to hope that they don't find out about that business deal. But instead, every piece of our life comes together Into one holy story. If every family member accomplished that this week, our families would be awesome. My family, my responsibility, as we try to cut him open this month. I beg you to look deeply into the holy calling of Christ Jesus. And it doesn't matter what it costs. It's worth it. We're pilgrims passing through. And what we're leaving behind doesn't compare to where we're going. this morning what can we do to help you I hope all of us will be praying for each other let's grow this month let's be as holy as we've ever been maybe we need to start again if you need the prayers of the church we'd love to do that with you and for you maybe you need to start If you're ready now to be immersed into Christ, coming as a believer, willing to repent and confess, we'd love to assist you with that. Maybe you're just hurting. Maybe you need prayers. Maybe you're confused. You'd like to talk more. Satan's got a lot of lies. God's got all the truth. Let's be careful who we listen to. Let's be holy in all of our conduct. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.